Thank you, worship team, for helping us think about the resurrection, celebrate it festively as we should. Boy, I was struck by that line we were just singing, that Jesus lives my mansion to prepare. He lives to bring me safely there. What an amazing thing. I don't want to overly literalize that imagery, although it's profoundly true, but I hope this is okay. I had a picture of Jesus working on my mansion with a big carpenter's tool belt. And I was, I was so humbled by that and struck by that as we were singing that because, because this idea that Jesus, the risen Lord of the universe, the creator of all things, is actively preparing a place for us. And you can't have an us without a you. Right? The individuals make up the us. And so there's a beautiful collective emphasis of who we are as God's people, but the collective is made up of individuals. So just to think that Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. That's an amazing thing. I wasn't a homeowner until I moved here, believe it or not, when I was 35. Before that, we actually didn't have to take care of anything. All the jobs I had before that just came with somebody I called and they came and fixed it. And, and not because I was wealthy, because I was living in residence halls most of the time. But, but it, it's amazing to think that Jesus is preparing a place for us. Now, I know it does, it's not filled with the second law of thermodynamics and everything's falling apart and, and we're constantly needing to keep up. Man, becoming a homeowner. Man, I didn't realize how relentless the fall was <laughs> until... Until I bought a home, man, you get something fixed, and you're like, what's that? Something else, right? But Jesus isn't doing upkeep in a fallen world, but he is preparing a place for us. That's amazing that Jesus is alive and active and preparing a place for us. It's just incredible. Well, if you'd open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, we are going to preach a passage this morning that is the Easter passage, right? Isn't it funny how we can get in routines and it seems a little odd to preach about the resurrection and sing these Easter hymns we were singing this morning when it's not Easter. It's September. What in the world? What are we doing singing these hymns and talking about the resurrection in September? Well, there's never a day that isn't a good day to talk about the resurrection. It's a reality that needs to invade our lives every single moment of every single day of our lives. And so let's look at this incredible 12 verses that Dr. Luke gives us describing this reality that Jesus rose from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the spirit who inspired it, who is present with us in this room, in our hearts, in our minds, and I pray that he would be powerfully at work through your word, into our hearts, and into our lives, for Jesus' sake, amen. Luke 1, uh, Luke 24, beginning at verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, 
And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven, to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women who were with them who were told these things to, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. You ever wonder how some things are things in our world? There's a barber shop I've been wanting to try up, on, up near Whittier, not far from here. And I drove by it the other day realizing I'm not going to get to because it is now a little store that does nothing but sell succulents. Succulents. Now, I, I love a good succulent with anyone. I'm not even sure if you know what a succulent is, but there are these plants just loaded with all kinds of moisture inside. I only know this because my wife is a plant nut, and, and she loves plants, and she's helped me appreciate the beauty of succulents. So, so I love a good succulent, but how in the world, in our economy especially, can you actually think, I'm going to start a succulent store, and it's going to thrive? Now, if you happen to be here this morning and you're the person who started that succulent store. I am not disparaging you. I love your optimism. But I'm just having a hard time imagining how it's going to last. How about vape shops? Now, I may run with a different crowd, probably do, but how in the world do vape shops stay in business? Somebody's going to come up, and, and I don't really want lessons on this. I'm just throwing out examples. I, sometimes I preach sermons and illustrations and things are the worst things because it's all people want to talk about. Well, you know, vaping is actually, I, that's not why I'm saying this, okay? Just, I'm sure there's a great reason why vape shops are still going, right? But there are all sorts of things in life. I'm, I'm thinking, how is this a thing, right? Or how is this still a thing? Actually, John Oliver, a late-night guy, comedian, he has, he has a segment he at least used to do called, How Is This Still a Thing? And, and I, I usually go, yeah, like pennies. He had a whole one on pennies. How are pennies still a thing? How are beauty pageants still a thing? Seriously, in our world. Really, how, all right, ladies, put on a bathing suit and walk around. How in the world... Now, don't come up and say, well, actually, it's quite a helpful subculture. These <laughs> ladies learn, no, don't miss the point here, okay? They learn poise. Yeah, I know. But come on, how is that still a thing in our world? 
You know, if we were in Texas, they would be wanting to kill me right now for saying that. But, but I just don't get it. But if you look at this story that we've looked at today, you find out how and why Christianity is still a thing. Every ter- everywhere we turn, there are things that we have no idea why. Like, why in the world is it still a thing to care at all what Harry and Meghan are doing today? Those are the things that baffle me in life. But if you think about Christianity, when you really pay attention to what we've been doing through the Gospel of Luke, you would rightly be inclined to say, how is this still a thing? How has something started by an unimpressive carpenter from a nowhere village called Nazareth? who no doubt was missing teeth and people disparaged his hometown. He had an impressive resume. People called him common and uneducated. Even though he was educated in the most important ways, people didn't value that. The Bible says he has nothing in his appearance that would attract us to him. No stately former majesty that would draw us to him. How did he start the greatest movement that goes on today so that we're gathering like we are in the world. How did a movement started by a guy who was constantly calling out and rebuking the religious influencers of his day and welcoming with open arms tax collectors and prostitutes and lepers? I mean, his disciples were always stymied by this this approach to life that he had. They, they, were, they were bewildered so often at how in the world this was happening. And how is this thing called Christianity still a thing in light of what Rob preached on last week? That the leader of this movement is beaten and tortured through the night and murdered and executed publicly between two criminals, two insurrectionists. How is this still a thing? <laughs> well, it's still a thing because of those verses we just read together. The disciples were wondering how this is still a thing too. They, they were cowering in cowardice, bewildered and perplexed. Even after the resurrection, we see all these terms. They're, they're bewildered, they're perplexed, they're confused, they're fearful. And so we recognize the disciples are wondering, how is this still a thing? They were probably saying, how did we fall into this in the first place? We should have known when we heard he was from Nazareth. In spite of the miracles, in spite of the teaching that was unlike anything we had ever heard, we should have known. Peter's denying him when a little girl asks him if he knew him. They're completely wondering how they got themselves into this. You may wonder that at times as a Christian, especially as the culture is increasingly hostile and opposed to the Christian faith in our society and and saying that we're on the wrong side of history all the time. You may be wondering, how did I get myself into this? My family thinks I'm a terrible person because I, I follow Jesus and His ways and not their version of Jesus, but the Bible's version of Him. How did I get myself into this? How is this still a thing? Well, it is because Jesus rose from the dead. (laughs) Jesus conquered death 
and hell and the grave. And as we'll see at the end of Luke in the beginning of his book of Acts that he wrote, he ascended into heaven and right now is seated at the right hand of God in a place of authority and honor and, and mediating for us and caring for us and preparing a place for us. That's what he's doing. He's preparing a home for us. There was a radical catastrophe. I don't know if you read the sermon prep this week that I think Kenny wrote it. They came out. It's, it's a J.R.R. Tolkien term he made up. Wouldn't it be cool to make up a word and it just stays in the English language? Rick, have you ever done that? If there's anybody here who's going to make up with the word, it's you. I bet you've made up lots of words. Yeah, but catastrophe is a word Tolkien made up that's in the English language. It's just the combination of these two words that mean good and catastrophe. A good catastrophe, that's bizarre. But he thought that was a really good way to describe the Christian faith, the Christian life, a catastrophe that's good, something that shakes the foundations of our lives but leads to a good conclusion. That's, that's how Tolkien thought about this. A good catastrophe, a sudden dramatic turn that results in well-being and an incredibly happy ending. Have you ever noticed that any good story has you catastrophe in it. It's got, it's got this idea of uh, things are going along in a certain way from the Iliad to a Brady Bunch episode. I'm talking about a you catastrophe here. We, we're, we're going along with life as we know it and then something happens. Either a shipwreck in the Iliad or Bobby's volcano explodes all over Jan's Girl Scout group or whatever it was. You know what I'm talking about? I'm telling you, stories have to have a problem that we're not sure is going to be solved. Any good story. All the great stories in the history of the world have this idea that we've got a problem and we don't know if it's going to get solved and if it is, how it's going to get solved and then something happens. The Bible, the, the, the culture calls it a reversal of fortune. Things are going along like a runaway locomotive in a really bad direction, and then in comes the Lone Ranger. Or better, Gandalf, riding over the hill on the white horse to save the day in the way we didn't have the resources to save it. The reason that story is so appealing to every human heart is because that's the story of human history from our Creator's perspective. We had a problem we couldn't solve. We didn't have the solution. We didn't have the resources. We didn't have the power. And it's called the human sin problem. It's filled our world with sin and sickness and disease and hatred and wars and everything we struggle with. And we can't solve that. But God can. And he did by sending his son to become a human being and walk our filthy streets in this fallen and cursed world and roll up his sleeves and give his life and live his life or the world to save it and so last week we saw that horrible death he experienced but this week we see the life that he had the power he had to raise himself from the dead and that's the solution that's why it's a good catastrophe I don't know if you use words like fortune or happenstance 
or karma or luck, but those are words that don't really fit into the Christian worldview. I, I want you to notice this little tiny phrase. It's actually just a little word in Greek, but it, it says that it is necessary in verse, verses 6 and 9. You see what the angel says to them when they come to the tomb? Look at verse 6. The angel says, he's risen. He's not here. Remember how he told you? Remember how he told you while he was in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified in this way. It's just this little term. It, is, it was necessary. It had to be this way. It's necessary for these things to happen the way they did. That points us to the fact that everything in our lives is being worked out according to the plan of an all-good, all-wise, all-powerful, sovereign king. The Bible calls it sovereignty. It's the sovereignty of God. It, it had to be this way. I know it was a catastrophe. I know it just was a punch in the gut to watch your Savior die, ladies. But, I'm talking to the ladies here like the angel, right? And ladies here, but men, you can listen in here to the conversation the angels are having with these ladies. And, and he says it had to be this way. Once again, the ladies are stars in the story. Not unusual. It's true in my family too, my wife. And uh, it's the star of the story. But, but here, women, Luke loves to highlight people you don't expect to be the ones who really get it. Here they are. Now, let's not give them more credit than they deserve. They're, they're, they're confused. They don't go to the tomb expecting it to be open. Right? They go bringing spices to embalm him. They're not tracking, saying, oh, it's Sunday morning. He should have risen by now. Let's go, ladies. No, they're going because they're assuming he's dead. And, and even after they're told, they're, they're still bewildered by this. They're perplexed by this. But they remember they remember. I love that. Remember how he told you. Jesus told you it was going to unfold this way. This shouldn't have blindsided you. This shouldn't, shouldn't have caught you by surprise. The, whole, the Old Testament prepares us for a restoration of the kingdom through the Messiah. And if Jesus is that Messiah as he was, he restores the kingdom. So that death on that cross couldn't have been the end of the story. He told you the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. It's necessary for it to happen this way according to God's redemptive plan. It's divine design. That's what's going on here. It's what Peter, the Apostle Peter, who runs to the tomb in our story, says later when he's preaching in Acts 2, that you, he's talking to the leaders, you with the help of sinful men handed Jesus over to be crucified and you know what he says? And all this happened according to the predetermined plan of God. This is the same thing in, in Acts 4. It, it, he's still holding people accountable. They're still responsible for being sinful men, for killing the Lord of glory. But it's all happening according to God's sovereign plan. The, the worst thing, the most evil thing that's ever happened, which is the crucifixion, that the only innocent man who's ever walked the earth was crucified between two criminals. And they're responsible for that, but he says it is necessary for it to happen this way. So the first thing is God's working out his plan. We can rest in that even when there's catastrophic realities in our lives. So that's the first thing. God's working out his plan. The second thing is there is hope in Christ. 
I must tell you, I, I've been reading the Bible as long as I can remember, since my, my mother was reading it to me before I could read. And so I, I, I know the Bible pretty well, but every time I really dig into the passage to preach it, which is why I'm so grateful I get to do this, it's one of the reasons, it, it's just amazing how things expand for me every time. I spent a long time this week thinking about just that little phrase there in verse 1. But on the first day of the week at early dawn. Early dawn. It's a new morning. It's a new day. It's a new week. Everybody thinks the week starts on Monday. It starts on Sunday because Jesus rose from the dead. Today's the first day of the week. And it happens at early dawn. I love that phrase. A new morning. God is the God of the do-over. You familiar with that phrase? I grew up in a pretty urban area. And so we didn't have a lot of green space where I grew up. And, and so we would often play in the streets. And so we would have to adapt our games to whatever that street was like. And whoever had parked cars on that street that day, they should have moved them because sometimes it was baseball with a real baseball in the street, right? Sometimes we hit a tennis ball and have mercy on the windows in the neighborhood, but sometimes we just couldn't help ourselves and had to play baseball. But it was amazing how good we were as kids and got along pretty well most of the time, constantly adapting the rules to the environment, to the situation. You know, like, all right, what if it hits that trash can? Is it still in play? Yeah, it's still in play. But if it hits the trash can and rolls into the other street, it, it's a foul ball. That's how we're going to do it. All right? Okay. Everybody got it? Good. That's how we're going to do it. Or can, can you catch it after it's in, into Mr. Hoffman's yard? Can you do that? Is that allowed? Right? And you make all these rules, but the best rule of all was the do-over. Now, sometimes people would cheapen the do-over by saying I wasn't ready, even if they were ready, because they didn't like the result, right? We don't want that. But God's the God of the do-over. God's the God of the new morning, the fresh start. doesn't matter what's come before. That new morning is an awesome thing. There are so many days that I'm burdened by the cares of this world, and I just think, I'm going to bed, and I'm going to get up tomorrow, and it's going to be a new day. I'm going to start again. I'm going to start that day, and those things will still be there, but it's going to be a fresh day. I'm going to dive into it anew. Just the simple reality of a day starting again can be a source of hope, and God uses that imagery throughout the Bible in beautiful ways. Again, I get caught up in all these incredible themes that are traced through the Bible when I, when I study these things. Listen to Psalm 35. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes when? In the morning. There you go, Kent. Thank you. Yes. In the morning. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Is that beautiful? Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. Listen to Psalm 90, Psalm of Moses. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. 
Psalm 143, 8. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. God is the God of the morning, the new morning. Now, some of you college students haven't seen the break of dawn in a long time. Or maybe from the other end of what we're talking about. You just never went to sleep. And you, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about giving up control through the beautiful surrender of sleep. God grants that and you wake up and it's a new day. That's how God describes it. It's not a coincidence the resurrection happens in this way. In the deep dawn. Oh, it's a beautiful image. God's the God of the new day, the God of hope. That's the second point. There's hope in Christ. He's the God of the new morning, the fresh start. Today, today, if you're burdened by grief, experience tragedy or discouragement or depression, weeping is the reality of your life. It can be a new day. In Jesus, even though time-wise, we're past the morning, it's still morning. And, and today's the day you can start over again. It's, it's an image of how God is always toward us, willing to start over. Have you ever battled a sin like I have, or multiple sins in your life, where you just are hesitant to go to God one more time and ask for forgiveness? With God... There's always a fresh start. There's always an eagerness, not just to be grudging, all right, but a yes. Yes, let the wicked forsake his way, and he will find rest when he comes to me. That's what God's saying. Never fear that God has grown weary of the new day with you. Third point, so there's hope. God's working out his plan. Third point, the disciples were the first struggling skeptics when it came to the resurrection. <laughs> if you're a skeptic here this morning, now you may pride yourself in that and be getting a whole lot of identity from it, and that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about genuine skepticism. You're a critical thinker. You think about things. You don't want to just take things because everybody around you does it. And, and I, I want to applaud you for that. And, and I want you to realize that doubting Thomas gets bashed all the time, but but. He's not just swallowing things from peer pressure. There's value to that. There's value in being a critical thinker in these ways. And the disciples are the first struggling skeptics. Look, listen to all the words used to describe them in this passage. Perplexed, frightened, confused, disbelieving, marveling. Jesus has risen from the dead and there's still a major process here in coming to terms with this. Now they come to terms with it. And that's what I want to encourage you. If, if you're in a skeptical mode, if you're in a doubting mode, there can be good in that. Can be. Not always. There's a difference between why and why. God loves this one. Not that one. There's a difference. There's a difference. I think that is what was going on at the golden calf in the wilderness. I don't like this God. I don't like the way he's spending this time up there, this scary Mount Sinai. Aaron, make us a more user-friendly God. 
It's not what I'm talking about. That, that's, that's coming to God with our agendas like that other thief on the cross who was saying, get us down from here and I'll follow you with his plan, his agenda. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about honest, good questions and struggling. I don't think you can actually grow in your faith if you're not asking good questions and doubting and struggling. But doing it in a way that's going to God with it so that you remember what he says. He's your source. That's the key here. Remember what he told you, it says. Go to the place you'll actually find truth. And Jesus is the way, the life, and the truth. And they remembered, it says. That's a key phrase in here. They remembered. They didn't forget. Jesus taught them and they remembered. Oh, that's right. He did say that, didn't he? He did say that. Their doubt had put a damper on their remembering, but the angel helped them remember what Jesus had said. That's right. He said he was going to be crucified, but then he was going to rise on the third day. They remembered. Remember what he told you. We need to base our lives on God's revelation and his word. That's why the Great Commission not only includes making disciples and baptizing them, but teaching them to obey everything he commanded because Jesus said, you love me by obeying what I commanded. And so we have to remember. We have to go to the places truth is found. It's always amazing me when a student or a person I know is struggling in some way with, with the truth of the gospel or the word of God they grew up with, and somehow they think they'll find greater truth in a club jamming out to the latest nasty songs <laughs> uh, or in substances or in pornography or, or these other ways of escaping in the name of doubt. Well, we've got to go to the place where truth is actually found. We can't just find people who are also struggling and doubting and feed that doubt with them. We need to go to strong Christians. That's not copping out on thinking critically. Continuing to be in the Word of God is not copping out on thinking critically. But it is moving toward the source of truth, the way, the truth, and the life that's found in Jesus. And you keep asking, what in Jesus isn't worth following? What in Jesus isn't worth trusting? What in Jesus isn't beautiful? What in Jesus isn't life-giving? And you won't find anything. That's why it's really hard to find anybody to say, I hate Jesus. Because he is beautiful. To know him is to love him. He is worthy of our worship. We've been giving him today, and the resurrection is the validation of that. And, and that's point four. One, God is the divine designer. Two, there is always hope in Christ. Three, the disciples were the first struggling skeptics, but they went to the word of God to find their answers. Four, Jesus really is alive. This isn't just some fairy tale. The resurrection's true, and, and I want to offer to you the fact historically that there was an empty tomb. And the reason this Christian thing is still a thing is because there was an empty tomb and no body to show for it. There are all kinds of theories people have come up with through the years to try to explain away the reality of the resurrection, but there's not a good explanation historically. You could have legitimate reasons to reject the education because of the presuppositions you come to it with of the ideas you arrive at the resurrection story with, like people don't rise from the dead. That's just something you've come to on your own, independent of this, but just realize that. I can respect that. I can respect that you have a view of the world that doesn't allow for miracles, 
But I want to ask you why. What's your basis for that? Because you haven't experienced something doesn't mean it's not true. And I would, I would want to say that I think we overdo the distinction between the miraculous and the natural. I'm, taking biology just changed my life. Where's Tresser in here? Uh, he's an expert on the cell. First time I learned about a cell, I, I, I was getting on my face worshiping God. There's a little city in that thing. There is. There's this highly functioning city in, a, in one cell. And, and, and there are lots of them. And we didn't even know about them until relatively recently in human history. Just a cell should, is all we need to believe in the miraculous. I mean, it's astounding. First time I learned about re reproduction in humans, the fact that any baby is born is miraculous. It's awesome. It's incredible. The fact that we're all functioning in an ongoing rate, way right now is just incredible. So why don't you believe in the miraculous? The miraculous is all around us, things we often can't explain. Do you know we know so much less than we don't know? I mean, do you, know how, do you realize how little we actually know? And the things we do know are mind-blowing and worship-inducing. So why don't you believe in miracles? Because there's good reason to do it. But there's a difference between the historical reality and the theological reality. When it comes to the theological reality, that's the meaning of this between us and God. That's when we need to trust God. That's not historically grounded, but biblically grounded. And so we believe in the historical reality of the resurrection, and then we look at what God says that means, what, what Walt was talking about. So what? So a guy rose from the dead, and he never died again. Wow, so? Well, it means our problem we have with God of rebellion and the penalty of that and the curse and the fall is solved. It's done away with. And we can trust him. And that leads to the practical reality of daily hope and confidence and joy and being able to be sorrowful and always rejoicing. It means Jesus Righteousness, life and death and resurrection and ascension and intercession are enough. Romans 6, 5, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. It is finished, Jesus said, and the resurrection is God the Father saying amen to everything Jesus is, was, and did. And continues to be. Jesus has done it. And if you're identified with him in saving faith, you have new life in him and hope for today and for eternity. And I think this is the hardest thing about the Christian life. It's why most Jewish people who believe in the Hebrew Scriptures don't accept Jesus as the Messiah because they say, well, if he was the Messiah, I don't see people beating uh, swords in the plowshares. I don't see war ending. I don't see sickness and disease. I don't see the kingdom coming. And what they have a hard time with is what we call the now of the kingdom and the not yet of it. And that's the tension we live in now. And so Paul's so confident of the resurrection and the defeating of sin, he's able to talk smack to death. Pfft, where's your sting? Step off, death. You got nothing on me. That's what he's saying. You got nothing on me. But then, deep down, what do we want to say? I know where the sting of death is. I'm feeling it right now. 
As I, as I think about Robert and Beth and his dear kids and, and losing trade, we feel the gut punch, the, the, the suck the air out of your lungs effect of death. We're still feeling that sting. But when Paul says, death, where's your sting? He's talking ultimately. And so we've got to live in a world that still has plenty of sting in it, knowing that that thing called death doesn't have the last word. Jesus does. And so we trust him even in the midst of ongoing struggle in this life. Listen to Andrew Peterson. Every stone that makes you stumble and cuts you when you fall, every serpent here that strikes your heel to curse you when you crawl, the king of love one day will crush them all. And every sad seduction and every clever lie, every word that woos and wounds the pilgrim children of the sky, the king of love will break them by and by. And you will rise up in the end. I know the night is cruel, but the day is coming soon when you will rise up in the end. If a thief had come to plunder... When the children were alone, if he ravaged every daughter and murdered every son, would not the father see this? Would not his anger burn? Would, not, would he not repay the tyrant in the day of his return? Await, await the day of his return. Because he will rise up in the end. He will rise up in the end. I know you need a savior. He's patient in his anger, but he will rise up in the end. And when the stars come crashing to the sea, when the high and mighty fall down on their knee, we'll see the sun descending in the sky. The chains of death will fall around your feet. You will rise up in the end. You will rise up in the end. You will rise up in the end. I know you will. When you trust Jesus in simple childlike faith, his resurrection becomes the payment for your resurrection, the assurance of your resurrection. We died with him. That's why when we baptize people up here, we say we were buried with him in baptism and we're raised to walk in newness of life. And one day, even though we have to feel the sting of death in an ongoing way in this fallen world until Jesus returns, we know that we have the victory over death and sin and the penalty for it. And so we trust our Savior. And so what do we do? We do what Peter does here. It's hard to imagine anyone who would have been more discouraged and defeated than Peter, the one who boasted that he would never deny his Savior. And then he does three times as he watches Jesus go to the cross. But look at his response. In verse 12. But Peter rose. So it says that the ladies come back and tell him this great news, the, the disciples, this great news, but the word seemed to them an idle tale. They didn't believe it. They, they thought it was really the sort of thing that someone says when they're woken out of a stupor, or you see those videos of people coming back after wisdom teeth surgery and they're on medication, and they're just saying nonsense, right? Blah, 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 saying crazy things and crying, that's all that is. Some crazy, uh, in an anesthetic uh, stupor, right? Um, but they didn't believe it. But Peter at least believed it enough to book his way to the tomb. But Peter rose and ran 
to the tomb, stooping in and longing. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now we find out, actually in next week's passage, that Jesus after this makes a special trip and meets with Peter before he meets with the rest of the disciples. And you know it wasn't to say, how could you? How could you deny me three times? Get out of my sight. You know that's not what Jesus said. You know he said, Peter, it's a new day, my man. It's a new day. I'm alive forever. And you can be too, Peter. Just trust me. It's a new day. No wonder when Peter saw Jesus on the shore when they were out fishing, he couldn't wait for the boat to get there after that. He swims to the shore. He's got to get there. Peter runs to the tomb. And, and you know what? The, the, the final point this morning is run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. If you've never met him, run to him. He's your only hope. He, he's the savior of the world. There's a reason that Christianity is still a thing. And it's because Jesus really rose from the dead. So run to Jesus. Boy, I could spend three hours on running in the Bible. It's all over the place, people. Isn't it amazing how running, you, you, you run toward things, you run away from things, right? We're all running toward something and away from something right now. A lot of us, we have to run from our past, running to solutions we think we have. Everybody's running now that Jesus has risen from the dead. The ladies are running to tell the disciples. Peter's running to the tomb. John goes with him, actually, another gospel writer tells us. Everybody's running, all this activity. And you know what? Their cowardice as they were hiding is a kind of running as well. But they run from the tomb, and then they run into the world after Jesus changes their life, and he uses them to change the world. So what are you running from? The Bible says evildoers run from God and run to evil. Abraham ran to see the heavenly visitors that came to see him. Elijah outran the chariot on his way to Mount Carmel in this miraculous display of God's power. Philip runs to the Philippian jailer, I mean the Ethiopian eunuch, to tell him about Jesus. People seeking refuge from God in, in Proverbs 18 run to God as their strong tower. We're commanded to run the race set before us. That'll be enough. I could go on and on. In the end times, one more, all the nations will run to Israel to worship God. So what are you running from this morning? What are you running to this morning? Are you running from fear and sickness and confusion and disappointment and anger, addiction, uncertainty about your future, a harmful, destructive relationship, grief, pain, bad news, failure, uncertainty, shame? What are you running from this morning and where are you running to? The only place to run is to Jesus. You can find quick temporary relief from all these things we run from through things like substances or pornography or endless recreation or binging on Netflix. We can run away for a little while. Are you running to material success or education or marriage or earthly pleasures? Jesus is the only one who will truly care for you. 
On Easter Sunday morning, everybody's running because Jesus walked out of a grave and he changed everything. You know, it's fascinating to me. I just read an article this week. Russell Moore wrote this article. Do you know that, that J.R.R. Tolkien, we started off with, died the same day, if you factor in the time change between England and the United States, the same day as Jimmy Buffett, 50 years later. Isn't that wild? It reminds me that, you know, Princess Diana and Mother Teresa died the same day. You know, C.S. Lewis and John F. Kennedy died the same day. It's fascinating how, how in the divine, divine design of history, we get these people who are so impressive, yet live tragic lives. And then these people who got overshadowed in the headlines the day they died by this more impressive person who lived lives of far more profound meaning. Jimmy Buffett and Tolkien die the same day. Isn't that wild? 50 years later. Jimmy Buffett's always said it's 5 o'clock somewhere, right? No, no matter what you're going through, somewhere it's 5 o'clock, so let's start the party now. It's hard to live life in a fallen world. Work is hard in a fallen world, so let's start the party now. It's 5 o'clock somewhere. Let's start the escape now. But there's a longing in Jimmy Buffett as well. Listen to this. Where it all ends, I can't fathom, my friends. If I knew I might toss out my anchor, so I cruise along, always searching for a song. Not a lawyer, a thief, or a banker, but a son of a son of a son, son of a sailor. He just wanted to get home. He wanted somewhere to throw over his anchor. He wanted the party to start now, but you can tell when you listen to his music, deep down he knew it couldn't. I think one of the reasons Jimmy Buffett's music was so compelling to human beings for so long is the same reason artists like Sting and others do. They, they have this happy song that deep down has a melancholy and a longing, and we can all relate to that. We just want to get home. And how good to know that the creator of the universe is preparing a place for us. The Shire is real, and so is the party. And if you run to Jesus, you know what you're going to find? God's been running long before you have toward you to love you and welcome you with open arms. So run to Jesus. If you want to run to Jesus in a little way, in a big way this morning, there will be folks up here, including me, to pray for you after the service. Let's pray now. Lord, we're grateful that when we run to you, we do it knowing you divinely design everything in our lives. It's good to know, Lord, that our struggles and our doubts are things the disciples who changed the world went through. Lord, it's so good to know that you're the God of the fresh start, the new day. Father, thank you that you're the God who is always eager to run toward us. So Lord, help us to run toward you today, even though we're tempted to go down all sorts of detours that seem more immediately helpful. Lord, help us to run to you as the only one who can really love us and care for us the way we need because Jesus paid it all and rose from the dead. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.